Neve Solicitors are proud to sponsor The Parent Show. The friendly team at Neves includes specialists who can guide you through all the legal ups and downs of family life. Visit nevesolicitors.co.uk. Neves Solicitors, your complete legal solution. A very warm welcome to The Parents Show on Radio Verulam 92.6 FM. I'm Lydia Elcoury. And good afternoon, uh, good evening. Sorry, I'm Seema Barker. And we are live with you now from St. Albans talking about a bit of a stigmatised topic. Um, and we're talking about the menopause. And the reason why we're talking about the menopause is it certainly affects women to a greater or lesser extent. But as a result, of course, it affects families and anything that affects families is of interest to, to us on the parents show. And this has been An interesting reaction to this show, hasn't it, Seema? It really has. Uh, Across the board, I think you and I have both had the same experience of people that, that are really interested. They've got so many questions, but... There's a there's a barrier to wanting to talk about it openly. Yeah, and coming on the show and actually speaking about it. So we have been inundated with questions, but just not many people who want to come on the show and actually ask the questions themselves, which is very interesting in itself and something worth reflecting on because it it should be talked about openly. It's it's you know, it's a very natural process, isn't it, that every woman is going to go through and have a a positive or a negative you know, there's a sliding scale, isn't there, of how the, how the reaction yeah, is? Yeah, we we are at the front line. We are really trying to talk about it more openly so that we can normalise this and and take away this taboo. Because, like you say, you know, it's affecting all of these families. Absolutely. So the we have the most amazing guest on this evening who is really going to come at this topic from every angle and it's Dr Heather Curry and she's a gynaecologist at Dumfries and Galloway she's also the founder and MD of Menopause Matters if you don't know what Menopause Matters is you will not go through the menopause without knowing what it is um, because it is just a fantastic resource and it's the resource that most GPs kind of signpost you to when you go through the menopause and she's also trusty and passionate chair of the British Menopause Society. So we have so many questions. We're actually going to keep um, Dr. Curry on air for the entire show and we'll still be taking your questions if you want to send them through Twitter or Facebook and we'll put them to Dr. Curry. So it, it, it is a tricky subject, but the other thing that makes it even trickier is that actually quite often the media aren't doing this, pro- this, this subject Justice. So that's something we want to talk to Dr. Curry about later in the show, you know, about HRT shortages, um, black magic solutions to to the menopause. And, um, and, and sometimes looking at some of those media articles, they seem to almost, well, not really be on our side on this. Yeah, exactly. So I know um, Dr. Curry has lots of opinions about her. So without further ado, we'll invite her on the show. Dr. Curry, welcome to The Parents Show. Thank you very much and thank you for the very kind introduction. I'm flattered. Oh, we're delighted <laughs> we're to have you. We're very excited to, to talk to you. This is, this is, you know, having you on to answer such a, a variety of questions, I think is what women really need because, because as we say it in our introduction, there's a little bit of a taboo around the menopause, isn't there? There is. I think it is definitely getting less. And, you know, the fact that you're having a program on it, there's been other radio programs, there's been television programs. So we are moving forward, which is fantastic. And it's actually quite crazy that it hasn't 
been talked about so much in the past because it does affect every woman. Um, and as you quite rightly said, can have a huge impact also on their families, on their work colleagues, their social life. Um, but it's fantastic that more is being talked about it now. So let's start at the very beginning. Assume everybody knows nothing. Tell us exactly what the menopause is. The the word menopause actually means the final period, and but but it's branded as being all that goes along with that. But it's derived from Greek menopausos, which means menses or period stopping. But the whole thing around that is why periods stop and in the natural menopause because you can also have surgical or induced menopause in natural menopause it happens because our ovaries run out of egg cells so to go through the normal monthly cycle you have to have enough egg cells in the ovaries so that each month during a cycle the an egg cell develops and then is released that's ovulation but along with that the ovaries are producing hormones that stimulate the lining of the womb, um, estrogen, and then after the eggs release progesterone. And once our ovaries run out of egg cells, the ovaries stop being able to produce these hormones. And the main one that's the key thing around the consequences of the menopause, but really means the consequences of ovaries stopping working, is estrogen. So when the ovaries run out of egg cells, the um, which the average age of period stopping is 51, but the as they run out of egg cells, they can't go through the normal cycle. They stop producing the hormones, so the lining of the womb isn't stimulated to, through the normal cycle, which is where it's thickened and then it's shed, and it's shedding of the lining of the womb in the absence of pregnancy that's actually the period. So that's a long-winded way of saying the menopause means the final period. But what it's all about, what it really means, is ovaries stop working, stop producing hormones, and we become low in estrogen. So once the ovaries don't produce estrogen, we don't have periods because there's no effect on the womb lining. But the consequences thereafter are related to being low on estrogen. And what is the perimenopausal phase then? The, the perimenopause is the time at which the ovaries are changing but haven't necessarily stopped working. So in some women, it's quite unusual, but in some women they have a completely normal monthly cycle and, and periods are a sign of what the ovaries are doing um, in terms of producing hormones and uh, they can have a normal cycle, normal periods and then suddenly they realise, oh I haven't had a period for a while and periods stop but more usually the ovaries go through a few years where they can just fluctuate so they might produce an egg and produce the normal amount of hormones but then they might have a few months when they're not doing very much hormone levels are low women start to get symptoms of that but then they can kick in again so the, the hormone levels are going up and down there's great fluctuations and it's it's the time when the ovarian function is changing but then we only know when we're actually into the post-menopause which is everything after the final period when we've had a year without periods um, so often the perimenopause is actually the most difficult stage because, first of all, it often can start in our 40s when we're not expecting anything related to menopause. We often associate that with it happening much older. I'm too young for that. And often the signs to start with that the ovaries changing can be quite subtle. And the, the main, the initial thing that women might notice is a change in the period pattern. And so if we keep in our mind... The pattern of the periods is telling us whether the ovaries are working normally or not. So if the pattern changes, that can be a sign that things are not 
quite right that things are starting to change. And, and it can be quite a difficult time to treat because you get these big swings of hormone levels up and down. And so if you try to replace hormones, you might actually get a point when there's too much estrogen in the system, and then you can get the dips again. So it's quite a chaotic time. I like to refer to it as the perils of the perimenopause. <laughs> it's quite chaotic and can be a bit unpredictable. And then when we get to the point where ovaries are not producing hormones, that also has consequences, but at least on a more even keel then. So if we are replacing hormones, you've got a much leveler baseline to be working with. That's, so that's really helpful. Can I just ask, with the perimenopause, so how long could that continue for, this fluctuation, maybe a few periods a year? Um, could, could, could that be one or two years, or could it be for five years? It could. It could be, you know, three or four up to five years. It, and we, we, we can't, not only can the signs of that and the symptoms of that be unpredictable, we can't predict when that, how long that will go on for. Right. Um, and we can't predict when our periods will finally stop. You know, quite often when I see ladies in the perimenopause, when they're having awful periods um, and other symptoms along with that, I often say, do you know, if I had a crystal ball and I could tell you, well, I realize you're having an awful time, but your periods are going to stop in a few months' time, then that would be great to be able to do that. And they'd probably think, oh, okay, yeah. okay, I'll cope till then. But there is no way you can predict how long that phase goes on for. And that, that's the hard, one of the hardest things, I'd say, as a doctor and as somebody going through the menopause is the complete lack of any predictability about it. Every woman is different and you just never know how long each part is going to last. Is, yeah. is, that, is that accurate? Or relatively that, that is accurate, yeah. We just... we. So often women will say, well, is, my mum didn't have any problems. Does that mean I won't either? And so while mum's age of menopause often does follow a pattern, that's often a family pattern, how, the, how it will affect us doesn't really follow in pattern at all for various reasons. I mean, we're all quite different, but also I think women's roles in society and lives are completely different from a previous generation. So the big thing when we come on to talk about symptoms is not just whether women are having the symptoms or not, but what is the impact on them. And then there's a lot of um, a lot of what determines that is is to do with our lives and how busy we are and all the other things going on in our lives. Because for some women, symptoms will have a bigger impact than others. That. That's really interesting. So um, just to uh, on that point about the mother's age, it's not a myth then. So although the symptoms can be completely different, actually, it might give you a ballpark if you knew that your mother, for example, had a menopause at about 50. Um, that maybe can give you yeah. some little kind of ray of predictability. Certain- there, there is so a family sort of connection okay. with the age of menopause, but not how the menopause is going to sure. affect you. Okay, that's very that's very interesting. There's lots of women doing the calculations quickly or texting their moms to go, what age were you again? Well, interestingly, though, another problem here is that, you know, often, I mean, we, just, we say that we don't talk about it enough. I mean, I spend half my life, more than half my life talking about it, but, you know, that's, that's me. But our mothers, I think, did even less so. So, yeah. you know, for example, I never remember my mother ever using the word period. Um, it was women's troubles. If someone was having problems with periods, it was women's troubles and it was a hushed tone and you just didn't talk about it at all. So as I said earlier, you know, things have moved on a lot, but I wouldn't have a clue at what age my mother became menopausal. Um, so 
again, that's a bit difficult to pin down sometimes because I think previous generations talked about it even less than we do. Yeah, I think it's uh, absolutely the case. And and they didn't talk about sexual health in any, in any way, really, did they? No, um, no. So if you talk about what to look out for, what are the 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 first symptoms that women could could identify is there a pattern in the symptoms so the first sign often that that whole hormone production and hormone balance is changing as i said can be a change in the period pattern and that's related to the cycle the nature of the cycle whether the eggs being developed and released or not um and so periods might become more often or they might start to spread out so you might miss a month And then next month you might have a period, but that can often be heavier because there's been extra time that the lining of the womb has been stimulated and built up. And so we would deal with that type of problem um, in a different way to the other set of problems that's related to our body gradually becoming lower in estrogen. So there's the period control pattern type of symptom first, but then other symptoms are around the... Um, gradually changing level of estrogen. So that can go both ways. And in the perimenopause, some women notice they have phases of breast tenderness, of bloating, of headaches, and that can be when they're getting big swings in the hormone levels. And also in that time, women often notice worsening PMS, so premenstrual syndrome. So that's thought to be related to um, the changing the ups and downs of hormones, which tend to be greater fluctuations in those few years before the ovaries actually stop working. And so, but the main consequence then, as I said, is due to lack of estrogen. And the consequences of that are divided into early symptoms, intermediate symptoms, and then long-term health effects that we all need to know about. And the early symptoms of becoming low in estrogen, and bearing in mind there are estrogen receptors all over the body. So while the range of symptoms seems huge, if we think about it, well, actually, all over the body, estrogen is doing something. And so the lack of estrogen may have consequences. But where in the body and what system that that affects is variable hugely between women. So the commonest symptom and the most well-known one are the, what we call the vasomotor symptoms. These are the flushes and the sweats. And the reason for these is that the, we have in our brain a thermostat, so an area of the brain that co- controls our body temperature. And during a normal day, our core body temperature fluctuates. It goes up and down a little bit, but that's okay. We can cope with that. But if our brain thought our internal organs, our internal body was getting too hot, that's not good for our internal organs, so it switches on cooling down mechanisms, which is opening up the little blood vessels in the surface, and that's the flush, and it's switching on the sweat glands, and that's meant to get rid of heat. So the problem with the lack of estrogen, that triggers the thermostat to go a bit wonky. So the brain thinks our body's overheating when it's not, and that's why then we can develop the flushes and the sweats. Eventually, in time, our body, these usually do settle, though you can never predict how long that will go on for. Um, so that's an example of it's a, an area in the brain that's affected by the lack of estrogen, which then goes a bit wonky and causes the commonest symptoms. And there's a huge range in the severity of those and the duration and therefore what the impact is as well. 
Um, mood changes are really common, and that's because there's estrogen receptors in parts of the brain that controls our mood. We might have low mood, anxiety. Some some women become quite depressed at that time. Um, irrational behavior women describe. Uh, joint aches is really common because, again, there's estrogen receptors related to the joints. So these are the sort of common ones. Um, along with sort of psychological symptoms, some women often describe brain fog. So just just difficulty focusing so much on things, some irritability, a whole range of symptoms that can go along with that. And what we find is most women are prepared for the flushes and sweats and they're expecting that, they know about that, but often they're completely unprepared for the psychological symptoms, um, for the mood changes, for the difficulty coping, the anxiety um, and disturbed sleep also, which can have an impact on on how we feel the next day. I, I couldn't agree more from a personal experience. That's it. I mean, I was totally taken aback or unexpected. I didn't expect the kind of psychological side effects of the menopause. And it really, it really is a struggle. And I think that's a big part of what should be spoken about a little bit more because I think a lot of women think they're going crazy. Yeah, they absolutely do. And and what a lot of women find really helpful, whether or not they choose to take treatment, is knowing that they're not going crazy and that they're not alone. And there's lots of support groups now available um, that can help women at that time. Actually, you're not going crazy. This is a hormonal change. And how much is sleep deprivation a role in the mood swings and potential depression, anxiety? Or can you separate them out? Well, that's that's really interesting. So sleep disturbance is really common and sleep disturbance can lead to mood changes. And there is a bit of a debate going on around which comes first. So, so sometimes an underlying anxiety can lead you to have difficulty getting to sleep and an underlying depression can lead you to wake early. So is it the mood changes underlying which cause the sleep disturbance or is it the sleep disturbance that causes the mood changes and it's a bit it's probably a mixture actually and and sleep disturbance is is related to various factors um some women will wake up because they're having the flush and the sweat at night but and so if you then can treat the flushes and sweats that can help the sleep disturbance other women wake first and then have the flushes and sweats and there's been quite a bit of research done on this so it doesn't always correlate the flushes and the sweats causing the sleep disturbance it 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 can be the sleep disturbance comes first but that especially you know women often still full working full time at this stage to to really have a bad night's sleep and then have so much to do the next day can be just really difficult to cope with Absolutely. And we'd love to talk more about menopause and work later on in the show. But um, it, it is, you know, it is it is a struggle and it's not an easy process to go through. And as you say, the more women can talk to each other about this, the, the better. I mean, I know from my perspective, finding out a friend was going through the exact same symptoms at the same time as me was a huge help. I mean, we we were kind of, we were men, we were merry buddies, you know, peri merry buddies, you know, and I think it's, it's, it's what women need to do. I think that's great. I think we should all have a meno buddy or peri meni buddy or whatever you called it. Sounded good. <laughs> so um, systematically going through this, they were some of the early symptoms. Then did you yeah. say, so there would be other symptoms that could come on later? Yeah. So the early ones, um, 
might just last a short while or may go on for years and years and years. So when it comes round to treatment, if someone finds these symptoms are troublesome, having an impact on their life and want to take treatment, you can never predict how long treatment's required because you can never predict how long the symptoms will go on. So what I then mentioned also was the intermediate consequences. So these are effects of the lack of estrogen of the vagina and the bladder. And these are incredibly common and talked about even less so because that's a whole big sensitive area. It's not easy to talk openly about the vagina and how it's feeling. Um, And these often present a few years after the final period. They can be noticed early on, but more, more likely... The, the early symptoms often when you're still having periods or shortly following the time the periods stop, but it might be a few years later before the, these other symptoms. And that on the vagina, that can cause vaginal dryness. You lose the, le- the it becomes less stretchy. It can be uncomfortable during sex. There can be irritation. But also on the bladder, you can have um, the function of the bladder changes. So women might find they're having to go to the toilet pass you in more often, they might get a sense of urgency that they really have to get there, um, and they might pass urine at night, and they might become more prone to urine infections. Um, so this this is also easily treated, and the message with the, con- the intermediate symptoms it is really important to talk about it, no matter how sensitive and embarrassing that can be, because it is treatable, and the problem if it's not treated I mentioned the early symptoms in many women do resolve at some point. You just can't predict when. But the vaginal and bladder symptoms don't get better with time. And so treatment is needed long term. And then the other effect is later on, particularly effects on our bones and our heart. So I often hear women talk about, oh, I'm through the menopause now. Um, and I don't want to sort of disappoint them, but this 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 situation of being low in estrogen never changes, and so our ovaries are not suddenly going to make estrogen at a later date. We're going to continue to be in that low estrogen state, and even though we get through that stage of the early symptoms, things that we notice, the the later effect is important for all women to be aware of. Because with the lack of estrogen, our bone strength changes so that we do become more increased risk of osteoporosis and our heart health changes so we have an increased risk of heart disease. And and whether or not we choose to take treatment for our symptoms, it's important to know about the later effects of the lack of estrogen because we might be able to do something to help that. It might be increasing exercise, it might be stopping smoking, it might be maintaining a healthy weight. Whatever it is, there's important things that we can do to to improve, to invest in our health later on. And, and I would love it that women see the symptoms as a trigger to deal with the symptoms, but also to think, okay, my body's changing now. What do I need to, to do to invest in my health later on? Fantastic. That is, that's such a great um warning in a way to women because there's there's so much to process on this subject and uh, the sooner we kind of plant all those seeds the better so you said a, a very nice word you said solutions so are there solutions and what are the solutions so the first thing that we that we need to start thinking about is is diet and lifestyle factors so are the things that we that we have been doing and 
because women do spend a lot of the time working, looking after the rest of the family, and sometimes don't invest time in their own health. And I'm speaking this from the heart. I know this myself, and but I think it applies to lots of us. So sometimes if we eat more healthily, if we take more exercise, if we cut down our caffeine and our alcohol, that can actually help our symptoms um, at stopping smoking. I mean, that's good for everything. And can also improve our later health. If in in reality, when I see ladies that are really, really struggling with symptoms, they may not be in the best position to be motivated to make lifestyle changes. And so sometimes it's important to get the, to help them get the symptoms under control, but then not forget the message around the diet and lifestyle things that's going to be helpful for the rest of their lives. But so if if a woman wants to look at treatments, the most effective treatment to counteract the problems related to being low in estrogen is giving estrogen back. And that's what HRT, hormone replacement therapy, that's the aim of HRT, is to replace the estrogen. If the womb, the uterus is still present, we also have to add in progesterone or progestogen, which is the hormone that protects the lining of the womb. Because one not so good thing estrogen would do if we gave it on its own is stimulate the lining of the womb, which eventually after a number of years can increase the risk of the, the womb cancer. And so we have to take give two hormones if the womb is still there. But if the womb has been removed, if she's had a hysterectomy, then we can give just estrogen only. So the first thing to think about in treatments and what the NICE guideline recommends women should be offered for these symptoms is um, HRT. And what you can only be prescribed HRT when you're fully menopausal. So during the perimenopausal phase, you can't take HRT. Is that right? No, you can. You can. Because in that time, although some women will still be having some periods by definition, because once the periods stop, then it's post-menopause, um, the ovaries are changing at that time. And some women do, while even while they're still having periods, start to have these symptoms of being low in estrogen. And so HRT can be used. At that stage, it's given in a way to sort of fit in with their period pattern. So the estrogen is the bit that's helping the symptoms. And we would start with a low dose usually because at that point, her ovaries are still producing some estrogen. So the point of HRT is just to top that up rather than replace it completely. So you'd start with a low dose of estrogen and the progestogen bit, which is looking after the lining of the womb, would be just given for the second half of the month rather than all the time. And because that's the way that hormone is produced in a normal cycle, progesterone is produced after the egg's released. And so it's given in that cyclical kind of way and that continues the monthly bleed and it's trying to sort of synchronize with her own cycle. But absolutely, that is one of the myths that, oh, it can't be menopause because you're still having periods and therefore you can't have HRT. But actually, yes, we do prescribe it in the perimenopause. So actually, if, and perhaps we'll come to talk about this later, which is that some women don't necessarily get um, the uh, kind of... help that they're looking for from their GP, if a GP is um, let not willing, in fact, to prescribe uh, any HRT treatment during the perimenopause, and let's say somebody's having just a couple of periods a year um, for a couple of years uh, and feel that the, you know, HRT is, is necessary because of the symptoms, if a GP isn't willing to, how, how, how does a woman deal with that? Because 
I mean, GPs aren't always that helpful. Um, I think GPs have an incredibly hard job and they do an amazing job. I can focus on certain areas of medicine. They have to be familiar with the whole range of medicine, and which is massive. Um, so through the British menopause, I will get around to answering your question. Oh, no, please, carry some on. background. With, through the British Menopause Society, we're doing lots of work to provide education in different forms for GPs. Our vision for menopause care in the UK is that all women should have a, an understanding of, of what we've been talking through, the, the basic principles of menopause, knowing what to look out for, that in every GP's practice, we would love there to be a GP with a special interest in menopause, and within each region, we would love there to be um, a specialist service. So, so to answer your question, then that what we really want is that women to go armed with information so that they can have a useful discussion with their GP rather than starting from scratch. To be able to do that, they need to know what to look out for, which is why we're passionate about providing lots of information for women so that they can sense, oh, actually, I'm in my 40s. I wonder if this could be hormonal changes starting. Um, and then ideally in a practice to have them to have someone to, to be able to go to someone who had a special interest. The specialist services that we have available around the UK, um, there is a register of where specialist services are on both, you can get to it from the Menopause Matters website and on the British Menopause Society website. It's called Find a Specialist. So you can put in your postcode and see where is the specialist service near me. And so it might be that they could, if they're, if they're not confident with what's happening, and I really hope that will get less and less because we are doing a lot to try and support our primary care colleagues who have an enormous job to do and who will provide most of the menopause care. It's a small proportion that would need to go to a specialist clinic. But women can see if the, where the clinics are and could always ask to be referred if that was required. But I hope, you know, we'll get more and more education to our primary care colleagues. Fantastic. Um, now, Heather, I want to ask you, so if you're going for the HRT solution, can you give us an overview of the options when it comes to HRT? The, so the whole point is to replace oestrogen, and that's available in tablet form, a daily tablet. Um, it's also available in patches and in a gel. When I say available, there have been problems in recent months about the availability of certain brands, and there is still a problem, and it is, a, a, it is difficult for people to... It is frustrating for them to have a prescription and then find it's, it's not available. And there's a lot of work, extra work, unnecessary work being spent by um, primary care doctors and nurses and by pharmacists trying to find equivalents. So, um, but if, if that is going to get better, we, the latest update is some of the preparations that haven't been available will be available in February and March. So it is getting better. So but if we go back to what we're giving, we're giving estrogen either by tablet form or through the skin. And, and how we decide whether to go with tablet or patch or gel, um, first of all, patient preference. So, you know, we have to, we may have theoretical ideas about what's the best preparation for the woman, but it has to be something that she's comfortable to take. Um, the, there are some medical differences between tablets and patches, so there may be some medical situations for which a, a patch or a gel would be 
preferred and of of um, l- less risk than with a tablet. For example, we know that tablet form of estrogen slightly increases the risk of having a deep vein thrombosis because the estrogen, when it's absorbed from the bowel, it goes through the liver. The liver is where our body makes the blood clotting factors. And as the tablet estrogen is metabolized in the liver, it can influence the production of the clotting factors. So if someone is at increased risk of having a deep vein thrombosis, perhaps if they're overweight or if they have a family history, then the recommendation would be to take estrogen through the skin, which doesn't influence the clotting factors. So there are situations like that where you would sort of recommend one or the other. But for many women who don't have other medical risks, if they prefer to take a daily tablet, that's absolutely fine. And and when we've had the studies looking at the benefits of HRT, we've had lots of benefits shown from tablet form of HRT. But there are, as I said, there are some women for whom a patch or a gel may be recommended. The progestion part, which is the part that looks after the lining of the womb, it isn't combined in some of the tablets. There was a patch which combined, a range of patches which combined the estrogen and the progestogen, and it's that range that's not been available recently, but hopefully is coming back soon. So if if someone at the moment is choosing a patch or a gel for the estrogen and need the progestogen or progesterone, they'd have to take that separately. It so is, then it gets a bit more complicated. So it, actually the situation isn't great at the moment. There's a lot of anti-HRT press out there, a lot of scaremongering. And then if women, you know, do brave it and, and do their research and find that HRT isn't, isn't as, as dangerous as they're being led to believe, then the, then the resources aren't there. So it, it is, it isn't a great situation right now. It's confusing, let's say. Um, the main concern that people have expressed and which often appears in the press is the association with breast cancer. Um, The the current understanding is that we don't have any evidence to believe that HRT causes breast cells to turn into cancer. And what a lot of people are not aware of is from the breast cells turning into cancer to becoming detectable, either by the screening or by a woman feeling that something is different, takes 10 to 15 years, it doesn't happen overnight, over a few months, over a few years. It takes a long time. And so, sadly, if some women are diagnosed with breast cancer and are taking HRT, it's often nothing to do with the HRT. The, the cancer has been there for some time. So the association with the use of HRT in breast cancer is thought, currently thought, believed to be due to some, in some women, some types of HRT may stimulate the growth of breast cancer cells that's already there rather than actually causing the cancer. And that's a really important concept to, to get across to women that it's unlikely that it's actually caused the cancer. It's promoted the growth of something that's already there. We think that women who can take estrogen only, there's very little risk of any uh, cancer being promoted. It is more to related to the women who take estrogen and progesterone taking it for more than five years after the age of 50. We have lots of research on this now. We don't know the definite numbers, but an example number that I keep in my head that's easy to 
to sort of get across is for every thousand women over 50 over taking five years of HRT, there may be of the combined HRT, estrogen and progesterone, the figure is around an extra four per thousand over five years. So for those four, it's awful. It's a horrible, horrible condition. And, and when I try and get it in perspective, I'm not in any way trying to belittle the importance and seriousness of breast cancer, but it is trying to get in perspective. So, for example, being overweight is a higher risk than um, the use of HRT. And if you think about it, an extra four per thousand, that means there are many, many women taking HRT who are never going to get breast cancer. There are many women not taking HRT also who are not going to get breast cancer. And what we have to try and do and get it in perspective. On the posted on the British Menopause Society website is a really useful um, document that's been written that talks about risk and publications and how the risk is, is portrayed. And what we really should be doing is looking at actual numbers. So, for example, the number per thousand rather than a percentage increased risk. Something can be quite uncommon, but can be increased by quite a high percentage, but still be quite uncommon. But the numbers that we use will have an impact on women's perception of that and whether they're worried or not. Fantastic, Heather. Thank you. I found the link and I'm popping it on our um, uh, Facebook page, the, yeah. the Parents Show Facebook page, so parents can uh, or women can read through through yeah. the f- it's, facts. It's themselves. an editorial that's in the coming out in the British Menopause Society Journal. It's very, very useful, very worth reading. So time is is zooming past as I feared. Just um, on so on HRT, if you're if you're on a on a treatment and you're you're not feeling great, how long do you give it? Do you switch? Um, usually about we would say about three months. So sometimes it may not control symptoms straight away. It might take a few months to do that. Some women in the first month or so may notice side effects, so they might get breast tenderness, bloating, headaches. And sometimes initially the bleeding pattern can be a bit erratic. So normally we'd say for any type of HRT, whether you're starting it um, from scratch or whether you've changed the preparation, to give it three months to see if that's going to be the one that suits you um, or if you need to change the type, the dose, the route. And, and so usually if someone's started on a treatment or changed a treatment, the review would be after three months. And, and it's, it's not helpful really if there's a review before then, for example, if, if it's not controlling symptoms, if the dose is sometimes increased too early, you need to give it that length of time. Once someone's settled on treatment, the recommendation is to have a review once a year just to see, is it, is it doing what I want it to do? Is, are there any side effects? What's the bleeding pattern? Is it, um, am I at a stage that I could have a trial off HRT? You know, all these kind of things that, that need to be taken into account. Great. And if, if, if women are out there and they're just not sold on HRT, are there alternatives? There are. So there are alternative therapies. There's lots that can be bought in the, co- in the shops. Um, when NICE did their guideline in 2015 on diagnosis and management of menopause, they did um, state that the black cohosh and the isoflavones, phytoestrogens, can be helpful. There are lots of brands available. It is worth looking for the 
THR registration, which is traditional herbal registration, which doesn't give any um, guarantee on how effective the treatment is, but it does at least give some guarantee on the contents of, of the preparation. And, you know, some people will find something that may not have scientific evidence that it is better than taking a dummy tablet, but if the woman finds it helpful to her and it's extremely unlikely to be harmful, then that's fine. And there's also alternative techniques. So there's some evidence that yoga can be helpful. There's been quite a lot of interest in acupuncture. It's not terribly clear how helpful acupuncture is, um, but certainly things like yoga can has been shown to be helpful. Um, the other type of estrogen I might just mention if I can, and sorry if I'm talking too much, um, so we talked about the vaginal and bladder changes. So vaginal estrogen can be really, really helpful for those changes in the vagina and the bladder. And also for the dryness, there are lots of moisturizers that can be used. You know, I often say we, we moisturize our faces on a regular basis, but we don't think about moisturizing our vagina, but that can be really helpful as well. That's excellent. And and I personally had a great experience with acupuncture. It solved my sleep in my insomnia for Fantastic. really, really quickly, literally overnight. So, yeah. I mean, and I, I agree with you. If it works and it's safe, yeah. who, who cares whether... We're, we're very different. I mean, we've yeah. said, you know, there's no way we can predict how lot how the menopause will affect us but there's no way we can predict what's going to be the best treatment for us either. Great. I, I feel like we we should move on to the questions we've been sent in by listeners and then we'll come back to our own questions if we've got time later on but um, I think we've got a, a lot of people listening in who are keen to get answers for, for some of their questions. So Heather Roberts would like to know if CBD oil is good for peri, peri or menopause? Um, not that I'm aware of. However... I don't know much about it, but actually it's just reminded me another thing that is really helpful is CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapy. And we do on the Women's Health Concern website, the patient arm of the British Menopause Society, and we link to it for Menopause Matters, there is a really useful leaflet on using CBT for um, sleep disturbance and mood disorders. Fantastic. We'll find a link to that as well. We've put uh, Menopause Matters on, on the Facebook page now as well. Thank so you. this is from a friend of a friend of a friend. Dear Dr. Curry, my question is, I'm a 47-year-old woman, have had one child. I want to know, can you still develop fibroids? Is it normal to develop fibroids outside the womb when you are peri in the perimenopause stage? Yeah, fibroids are really, really common. They're just um, simple, benign. They're called tumours. That's a worrying word, but it's just simple areas, changes in the muscle layer of the womb. Um, they often would shrink, not go away, but shrink when we go when we become low in estrogen. But during the perimenopause, when we're still producing estrogen, they can be stimulated at that time. So it's unusual they develop out of the blue at that stage, but they may have been there for some time and just gradually stimulated by the hormones. I'll just finish her, her question, actually. Sorry, I turned the page. I can't understand why, if estrogen levels should have been dropping why the la in the last nine months I have developed an additional fibroids outside my womb. Oh. FYI, I have two existing fibroids that have been there for at least five years. Yeah, I, guess, I mean, I guess, how do we know that? So, you, you know, you would just know from scans. Um, but yeah, I mean, estrogen levels are changing at that time, but it doesn't mean they've dropped so that the fibroids are not being stimulated. As I said, it might be unusual 
to develop them for the first time at that time, but I have seen that happen before. And she also wants to know, is there an optimal diet for the perimenopausal stage? Are there foods to avoid? It's the same kind of dietary advice that that we give for everything. So plenty of unprocessed foods, cut out the junk. Perhaps some women do find cutting down carbohydrates at this stage can make them feel less bloated. Some have even reported less of the hot flushes and sweats. Um, Certainly cutting out or cutting down things like alcohol. Lots of women find that they feel worse, more flushes and sweats, and maybe don't sleep so well after alcohol. It's, it's not a magic diet. There has been interest in the whole phytoestrogens and soy diet, and this has come from, in Asia, the, a sort of perception that, that women don't have as many menopausal symptoms. Um, in fact, they do. They just don't report them and talk about them as much, which is, is what we currently believe. And, and to have a, a soy-based diet, um, to mimic anything like that, we'd have to change it dramatically. So... It's, it's, not, it's not a magic diet. It's the same, plenty of fiber, plenty of vegetables, a whole mixture of things, cutting out on the processed foods. Um, I had some really good advice one year from someone leading up to Christmas where you're always worried about putting on extra weight, and, and someone said to me, just don't eat anything beige. And if you think about it, beige is all the lovely stuff that we do eat, especially over Christmas. So go for the colours would be my advice. You don't mean jam jam donuts, do you? You just mean... Oh, <laughs> I did. okay. I didn't think so. Um, now, let me put a couple of questions to you. Actually, one of them relates to drinking. Uh, one of... Uh, um, their listeners, Julie, has said that her tolerance levels have dropped enormously since yeah. uh, the peri- perimenopause, and she can't drink two glasses of any alcohol without just feeling nauseous. Is is there anything she can do about that, or does she just have to just take that on the chin for as long as it lasts? I've had a lot. Of, I know of a lot of people that's quite common that we just find we can't cope with it the same, and um, I've myself have been discovering all sorts of low alcohol ranges which are actually getting better um certainly a nicer taste uh, i think we we have to be very careful about the amount of alcohol we drink and a big thing with hormone levels changing is our weight changing and and that's another symptom that we often find we put weight around the middle there's a huge amount of calories in a glass of wine and so that in itself is a good reason to try and avoid it or at least reduce it significantly. Right. So so that unfortunately is just take it on the chin. <laughs> but, but that does actually what you were just talking about uh, leads me to another question from a listener, which is, um, is that weight gain inevitable during the menopause and perimenopause? It's not inevitable. It's very common. So it's to do with our fat distribution. So with lack of estrogen, we tend to become more apple-shaped rather than the pear-shaped, which is the female distribution. And actually, that is quite a, a heart risk. So having more fat around the middle is one of the things that increases our risk of, of heart disease. So it is hard. I haven't myself found the magic answer. It's looking at our diet. It's looking at exercise. Um, whatever exercise we find helps for us, it's a hugely important time to exercise. And, you know, it doesn't mean we have to pay an expensive gym membership. Walking, for me, is the best ever. And, you know, we can all do that pretty much. So, it, it, again, it, as I said earlier, it's a trigger that we have to, you know, just think, okay, I need to invest in my own health at this stage. And how am I going to do that? And find out something that you enjoy, that's a sustainable um, 
you know, is there a sport that I could enjoy doing? There's there's quite a lot of um, work going on with women in sport, encouraging women to take up more sport and exercise. It's hugely important. Fantastic. So Tracy wants to know, could you possibly ask how I can find out if the Tesco's menopause tablets would be compatible with warfarin? Uh, would this be through my GP or would it be a phar- would a pharmacist be able to advise? No, I had never heard of, I didn't know if Tesco had their own range of menopause tablets and I don't know what's in them. I think a pharmacist would be able to look at the box and be able to give information about that. There are a few of the alternative therapies that do interact with other medications, but most of them don't. But I would have thought a pharmacist, a pharmacist would be able to help with that. Fantastic. Night sweats, Leslie would like to know, have you got advice about them? So it is one of the symptoms that HRT can be helpful for, but there are other simple things that, that people can do. So you can get all sorts of things like the special nightwear, the special bedding, there's um, there's a cooling gel that you can put in your pillowcase that can keep you cool at night, there's a spray that you can get. A lot of women find these things actually really helpful. It's just finding out what works for them. Having a fan at the side of your bed, you know, all these things for some women may be helpful. Um, the underlying cause is lack of estrogen, and that's why giving estrogen is is the most effective. We've talked about alternative things, so things that women can buy, but there are other alternative preparations that can be prescribed. So, for example, there are some women for whom there would be medical reasons not to take HRT, for example, having had a hormone-dependent cancer. And so... We have to explore what other options we have. And to do with the flushes and sweats, I mentioned that it's the lack of estrogen that is the trigger that makes the thermostat go wonky. But there are other chemicals that are involved with how well the thermostat works. And that has led to other medicines that can be prescribed that can interact with that thermostat and have been shown to be helpful. So so there it's, it's So HRT is the main thing, but actually there are other things for women who can't take HRT. Thanks. That's great. Um, Now I've got a question from a listener whose name I won't mention, but um, her uh, mother and grandmother both had breast cancer. In those circumstances, is it safe for her to take the hormone patch? Um, The family history of breast cancer can increase the individual's baseline risk that doesn't mean she could absolutely not take HRT. It would be having a discussion either in primary care or sometimes that would be an indication to refer to a specialist service to put the whole information together. So, you know, the, the, it may be that there's a, there is the family history, but it may not be genetically linked, but it's trying to work out what is that risk to her. And we did I did talk about the association with breast cancer is not an immediate effect as if if HRT taken for a few years and therefore, you know, it may be completely reasonable to consider using HRT for a short time to get through that phase of the worst symptoms. So it has to be individualized, but it's not an absolute reason that she could never take HRT. Great. So Dawn would like to know what strength of oestrogen, whether it be gel or transdermal patches, have are recommended. This is for those receiving progesterone through Marina Coil. My friend feels she's still depleted on two pumps of estrogel a day. The, so the Marina is a, a, another way of pro- providing 
progesterone to protect the lining of the womb. And some women will have a Mirena in for contraception or they may have had it for control of heavy bleeding because it's really good for both of these. They may then get to the point where the ovaries start to work less, they have less estrogen, and so they might want to add in some estrogen. And a Mirena will protect the lining of the womb for five years it can be used for the progestion part of HRT for five years. And so in that time, it is okay just to use estrogen. And, and so the Mirena itself wouldn't influence what type of estrogen it would be taking. The type of estrogen would be determined by the woman's history, by her preferences, by perhaps other medications, as you would for anyone deciding what route of estrogen to use. But with that question where somebody feels that they're still depleted of estrogen, it's just a matter of talking to, to their GP. Oh, sorry. Yes, I missed that bit. So no, if she still feels low in estrogen, yeah. she's taking two pumps of gel. Yeah. Um, so, yes, yeah, so the dose can be increased. And if that's been taken for more than a few, longer than three months, say, and still feels it's not quite enough at, at the review, that was where that could be discussed. So the, we talk quite a bit about reasons for taking estrogen through the skin known as transdermal which is either the patch or the gel but some people don't absorb it i don't know why whether it's to right. do with their skin type sometimes they might be taking quite a high dose but not absorbing it so well through the skin and again that would be discussed with their doctor unbelievably we have only got a few minutes left and we're trying desperately to get through our listeners questions so i'm just going to move you on if i can to this one you referred already to supplements uh, julie wants to know she is taking a menopausal supplement is there any point is it going to actually make a difference supplements are quite different to the alternative therapies so the alternatives that contain preparations that may be mimicking estrogen and um, maybe helping symptoms but supplements such as vitamin supplements that kind of thing if you're taking a really good mixed diet and a whole range of products you probably don't need supplements and the supplements themselves are not going to do anything for the menopausal symptoms fantastic quickly um could you ask um, Dr. Curry why prescription of medication seems to be really random? Try this one, no good. Okay, here's something else I have on my list and so on without any explanation of why. I'm really sorry. I know we're running out of time, but I didn't hear that so well. Sorry. Oh, no sorry. problem. No problem. Uh, is there is the assignment of medication random or is there a reason why their doctors suggest one over the other? Oh, okay. So so what we recommend is that they understand when you would... what when you would use the tablet form or the patch or gel form. And then in each region, there's often something called a formulary where they have a few things that they can choose from that they can be prescribed, which have been determined on on price, on range of doses, all that kind of thing. And so it, I would hope it isn't just sticking a pin in the list. I think it's it's done in a much more structured way than that. To be honest... As long as you follow the principles of what route, what dose to start with, whether it's estrogen on its own and estrogen and progestogen, because you can't predict how someone's going to respond, we would much rather the doctors and nurses become familiar with a few preparations. And it doesn't really matter which you start with, as long as you've worked through the principles of how to work out which route and which dose to start with. Because you've no way of knowing you know, a lot of preparations are given the same hormones and you've no way of knowing how you're going to feel on each on each one. Dr. Curry, thank you so much. We didn't even get give you a break. I'm so sorry, Anna. <laughs> but it's That's been okay. it's amazing, been so helpful to talk to you and I'm sure a lot of women and families are going to benefit. 
Well, I hope so. And thank you very much for inviting me. Pleasure having you on. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Neve Solicitors are proud to sponsor The Parent Show. The friendly team at Neves includes specialists who can guide you through all the legal ups and downs of family life. Visit nevesolicitors.co.uk. Neves Solicitors, your complete legal solution.